Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Oh, uh, that would be me. Uh, my name is Gary, Gary Eck. Um, that's my name. Hello, Gary, yeah. Gary Eck. How are you? <laughs> not, not Gary, Gary Eck, though. Like, like, like Gary, Gary Beers from yeah. uh, In Excess. You are Gary Eck, Just not Gary, Gary Eck. Gary Eck. Eck. Yes. I, yeah. I, I, to be honest, that's the first time I've ever announced myself like that. So I don't know why I did that. Gary, if Gary you, Eck. It's, well, you, you inserted a comma. I'm Gary, comma. Yeah. Gary That's Eck. true. That makes a lot more sense, yeah. And I, I, I do say it more slowly now because when I say Gary Eck, people yeah. hear Greg. And yeah. so if I meet people for the first time, they go, oh, thanks, Greg. And I go, yeah. and I, it would happen all the time. And then I'm like, why are people calling me Greg? And then I realize I think it's because when I say Gary Eck, it sounds like Greg. And then yes. it's their subconscious brain that goes, oh, he must be a Greg. No one's called yeah. Gary these days, you know. Well, no one's called Gary. Eck. No, no one's That's called Gary. That's what they kind of hear. So they must be like, Greg, I must have misheard Greg. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> uh, how do you describe yourself, Gary, when people say, who is Gary Eck? What, what do you say? No, I, these questions are always really difficult, I think, to answer because mm. I, I'm not even quite sure myself half the time. I mean, if I'm introduced, if I introduce myself and someone says, what do you do? I tend to say, oh, I'm a comedian. Um, as a vague sort of definition. But I'm always wary about that because then you, you start to get questions if people don't know you're a comedian. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> you're really? You're a comedian? Oh, okay, that's pretty, yeah. uh, you know, bold of you. You don't, because I don't look funny. You know, suddenly I'm, I'm sort of pigeonholed as the, this guy thinks he's a comedian. You know, so I, I, but I, I, I st- it's a real proof of concept it, profession in that regard. Like it's, I assume if someone says you're at a party, you know, I'm an architect. Everyone's not like, you don't look like an architect yeah. to me. This guy reckons he could design a house. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I don't believe this guy at all. Do you he looks like an architect? doesn't look like an architect. It is true. I mean, there is this misconception that, you know, a comedian has to look a certain way or act a certain mm. way. And if you're quite reserved or you just don't feel like talking to someone, and you say to them, oh, I'm a comedian, they, there's an instant doubt. Unless they know you or they've seen you. But if they haven't, they tend to just, ah, oh, yeah. And then they usually say, so, like, full-time? Like, do you do that all the time? Because they're still doubting you. Yeah. And you go, oh, yeah, no, I do that all the time. You know, it's full-time. Yeah. Oh, really? Really? Wow. So, where, where? where? Like, they're just trying to find <laughs> out, like, really? Are you, are you bullshitting? Are you having us on? But, uh, yeah. But, mate, like this is – I I mean, I think this is one of those things where it happens forever, right? Like because I've been in the back of countless, you know, Ubers or taxis or whatever when the topics come up, oh, where are you going? You know, I'm going to the ABC. Oh, do you work at the ABC? Mm. And I was like, yeah, what do you do yeah. there? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I do bits and pieces, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, like – and then you kind of finally get on. Yeah, no, I have – and they're like – and in my head I'm like – I'm actually like really successful and like this thing's been on for ages and like I don't know why I feel like just because this person has no idea who I am 
that matters or that, that is some – but it is one of those things that I think that if people think if they haven't heard of you, then you can't be doing any good. It's true. It is. It's true. <laughs> if they haven't heard of you, then you're, you're a nobody. And then, then yeah. they always equate you with big-name comedians like, oh, do you know Chris Rock? And, you know, it's like, well, yeah. I'm not that level, right? Right. I remember – But there's, so, there's something in between me and Chris Rock. Yeah, right? somewhere there's a big, big <laughs> chasm. I remember being on a plane once and I sat next to this guy and – I'm, I'm, I'm very reluctant to say I'm a stand-up comedian because I thought, oh, I've got to go through my backstory. How did you get started? All that kind of stuff. And so I kind of wasn't asking him questions and he wasn't kind of asking me questions, but we're talking. And eventually it got round to, he said, oh, so what do you do? And then I quickly jumped in, you know, I said, well, what do you do? I said, oh, well, you know, you probably wouldn't, you know, what do you do? And we kind of bounced back and then eventually said, oh, it's hard to explain, but I, I train killer whales. Oh. <laughs> I thought, oh my god, that's amazing! And then I, I just, I thought that was the most interesting. And then when I told him that I was a stand-up comedian, he thought that was the most interesting and wanted to delve into that. I'm like, no, no, forget about me dying on stage one night. I want to. How do you train killer whales? Tell me about that. Yes, and also him telling you about his like work and career might have a double bonus, which is you could actually use you know, that information or that story or something you pick up in that conversation for your work. Whereas mm. that the other way around, he's not picking up anything from your explanation of being a stand-up comedian that he can take back to the killer whales. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, whales, we want, we want this funnier, funnier. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I am interested though, I know you just said the background of being a stand-up yeah. comedian, how did you start? But unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to ask you that because I'm fascinated because I always describe – Getting into stand-up comedy, I, I talk to people about how I feel very lucky that I feel like I was of the very last generation that got to decide to be a stand-up comedian before that was a good idea. You know, it was like still a terrible waste of your talent, waste of your, you know, mm. creativity. It was like it was so, running away to join the circus when I started and you started before I started. So I can I take – can we go back to where you first started and how it – like how did you decide that you were going to become a comedian? It's really interesting because as you say – like I think every comedian that ends up becoming a stand-up comedian or pursuing it professionally never actually sets out to become a stand-up comedian. I think there is an innate calling, something there that you just go, oh, I, I think I could do that. And when you see it – like I remember seeing stand-up I think on the big gig – for the first time in the sense that they were Australian comedians. And I just suddenly went, oh, wow, that, that's really interesting. I'd love to be able to do that, but never kind of thought there was an avenue to go and do it. And then I started at school. I remember it was year 12. Theatre sports kind of exploded onto the scene and we formed a team in, in year 12 and we went and played in camp because I, I was in Canberra at the time. And, uh, and I suddenly got into that and I thought, oh, wow, this is – I love this. You know, people suddenly uh, – you know, you go on stage and people laugh at you for being silly, saying something stupid. And I, I think I, I really got addicted to that. And, uh, and, then, and then one day they started a, a comedy room in Canberra, The Private Bin. I don't know if you ever did The Private Bin. Never did it, but when I was at university in Canberra, went to it regularly. Yeah, yeah. Like I was – the comedy nerd, you know, because yeah. like, I loved comedy and that was pretty much the only place that you could see regular comedy in Canberra was the Private Bin nightclub yeah. upstairs at the Private Bin. Wednesday nights. Th 
I remember they would open, like I must have been sponsored by a radio show at some stage. Was it like or a radio station? Because I remember them throwing out hats. Yeah. I remember, I remember that part of it was throwing out hats. It was definitely because that's how they started. They, mm. I actually heard an ad on radio. It was, it's 104.7 is what would have been the radio station promoting it. And they just started and, then it, and this ad came on and it said, you know, if you think you're funny and want to give stand-up comedy a try, give the private bin a call. Give them a call. They're waiting for your number, your chance at comedy stardom. Give the private bin a call. And I heard this ad for about three weeks and I kept going, I'd really like to do that. And I'd never yeah. done stand-up before. I'd never even tried it. But, you know, having done theatre sports, I was kind of aware of, you know, just standing on stage. And so I rang the guy and back then it was no one had mobile phones so you just left a, a, a message on, on the answering service machine and then he calls back a few hours later and he says, oh, mate, you're not going to believe You're the only guy who's called. No one else has rung, right? For three weeks I've been playing that ad, not one friggin' call. You're it. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, mate, you got to do it. I gotta, I'm, not, I'm not spending all that money on ads and not having yeah. someone get up and do it. And I said, oh, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. And so I, I kind of went, oh, okay, now I've got a real reason to do it. This guy's going to force me mm. into doing it. And so... I try, I try to cobble together a routine. And, and then back then they, what they were doing is all com- comedians from Melbourne and Sydney were coming up. So, um, you know, it was, you know, Pommy Johnson and, you know, coming up from Melbourne. And, and that's where I met Akmal Sali. So um, he was coming down. I remember he was doing a show with Rhonda Carling Rogers. And um, so what happened when I, I started doing the five minutes, I did this five minutes on the opening night and I think I did okay. I mean, if I was watching. I didn't doubt, did you go beforehand? Like, hey, did you go and watch it at the private bin beforehand or did no, you? No, I didn't. The fir- I just rocked no, up. So the first cold. time you did it was just completely cold. Completely cold. And I was just completely shitting myself. The whole day I was just so nervous. I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is going to be, you know, this could be awesome. This could be horrendous. You know, that part of your brain that keeps... <laughs> playing the scenario, what it could be, like everyone just yeah. laughing and going, this is amazing. Yeah. Or, you're the greatest. You're the greatest. Where have you been? Like, have you oh, been? my God, well, I want to hang out with you. And then the other mm. alternative, which is like, oh, my God, that you you suck, you're yeah. death, and you've ruined my night, um, <laughs> which I always find amazing in stand-up that, you know, even in tough shows, yeah. you go out there to do your best. That's your, your yeah. intention. Right. You never go yeah. out there to just die and, and, and make a, a misery yeah. of yourself and to make a misery of their lives. You go out with the same intention to get laughs and, and do a really good show. But if you don't, if it doesn't work out that way, people take real offense at that. They really find that offensive. And I find that extraordinary that they go, oh, my God, you've, you ruined my night. That was shit. You yeah. weren't even funny. You know? And they, 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 they're, they're quite upset <laughs> about it. And then you go to the bar and if, if it's a great show, the barman will say, yeah, don't worry, man, it's on us. You know, it's, it's, it's free beer, mate. But if it's a shit show, they're like, ah, that's, that's $8. Yeah. You know, oh, well, I was the comedian. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but um, yeah. I saw that and uh, <laughs> that's, that's $8. <laughs> I've honestly had that happen to me. And I'm like, well, that's not fair. I'm, I'm, I'm trying no. just as hard each time. Harder. 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 You have to work harder. Trying harder in a bad gig than you – like – you should get paid more for a bad gig than you do. Like, I, I mean, the truth yeah. is we're, we're getting paid for the bad ones. That's true. Like, the, the ones that are amazing, I mean, and for the just okay ones, mm. you know, the ones that are amazing, we'd all do for free. If we yeah. knew it was going to be amazing like it can be, those nights when it is just like nothing, you know, you, you, your feet aren't hitting the ground, nothing can touch you, you know, we've all had. If it was like that every night, we'd, do, we'd, we'd pay to do mm. it. 
not asked to be yeah. paid to do it. It's all the other nights that we're getting paid. Exactly. For. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I mean, it is a weird profession where you are really prepared just to do it for nothing, you know, and and quite happily drive two hours to a five minute gig or something. You know, it's it's an extraordinary profession when you think about it. I guess. Well, so you started like yeah. So the private bin in Canberra, no longer the private bin. Unfortunately, I was in Canberra this year. It is no longer the private bin. Unfortunately, but uh, um, I have like great memories of seeing acts like the ones you named, Akmal, Pommy, Rash, Rash Rider, probably. I, I think like you know, just people who were like big sort of club circuit comedians of the time people who would travel around from place to place and do these gigs and smash these shows you know like not people that i'd heard of on tv or radio or any of those things at that point just literally live working you know comedians like acts on the scene so do you remember who was on the night you were on like your first gig i think ah, oh, who was it i think it was um oh, what was his name he, he stopped doing comedy um Oh, now I've got a, I've got a blank. I'm going to remember in a sec. Oh, so we're we're talking basically 1990, 1991. So it was a long time ago. So I'm like 2021 when I first started, and so, and when I when I started doing it, I sort of became the regular MC there because the guy said, "Man, why don't you just MC and bring on the acts?" And you know, and so I did that for a little while, and that's why I started meeting all these comedians. And I remember meeting I don't know who it was. And they, I asked them, I said, how much do you get paid for this gig? Do you mind if I asked? You know, because I, I, you know, I was getting like beer vouchers, you know. And the guy said $400. And I went, wow. And this is 1991. <laughs> yeah. I thought $400. Yeah. I thought, wow, this, what a life this is. This is amazing. And I didn't realize at the time that yeah. that was their gig for the month. You know, that was $400 for the month, right? Mm. There weren't a lot of gigs going around. Make it last. And I was calculating, wow, man, they must do this yeah. every night. You know, this <laughs> yeah. is amazing. And I, I really <laughs> thought to last. myself, yeah. hey, well, <laughs> I really want to do this. I really love to give this a yeah. shot. And <laughs> I was about to graduate. I was at Canberra University, so I'd, I'd, I'd almost graduated. And I thought, oh, when I graduate, I'll, I'll move to Sydney. And that's I met Akmal on, um, at the private bin, and we really got on. We sort of clicked, and he'd driven down with Rhonda Carling Roger, as Rogers, and the car had broken down. And I just happened to be driving to Sydney the next day. And I sort of said to him, I just met him. I said, oh, do you want a lift? I can give you a lift. And he goes, oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, great, great, great. I'm staying at this hotel. Um, and then I kind of went, oh, he's probably organized something. He'll get his own way back. But he didn't. He waited for me there. And he's like, well, this guy's coming to pick me up from Canberra. He's going to drive me to Sydney. Um, and I never did. But... Uh, <laughs> 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 but then that's, and when, then I, when I went to Sydney, you know, I, I met with Taco and, you know, we, we formed a kind of pretty strong friendship pretty quickly and, and good stuff. And, you know, that's kind of where I sort of got into the stand-up. And then um, I'd also been writing comedy for radio in Canberra. So like the 104.7 doing the morning crew kind of comedy sketches. Um, there was a, a guy there that had left and he kind of just – said to his brother who I went to uni with, hey, you want to you, you mm -hmm. get a couple of guys together and you can write some sketches. Um, so, yeah, when I came to Sydney, I started just freelancing um, for Doug Mulray sending in sketches. So, yeah, so for people who don't know the context of Doug Mulray, like he was mm. as sort of big and subversive, but like he had, did that amazing thing of being both mainstream and quite mm. – you know, subversive at the same time, Doug Mulray, in an era where that was 
a newer thing to be hearing on the radio, particularly Australian radio. He was quite a – he was like a – I mean, because for people who didn't grow up with Doug Murray, because the, the nature of radio is that it's regional – he was one of those people that across the border we would only hear of the the legend of Doug Mulray rather than being able to find much evidence of, you know, being able to hear the show. But what was it a big iconic show for you too or did you just arrive in Sydney and, and you know, look for what to do? Had been writing for radio and decided, well, like maybe I could write for Mulray. It was a bit of both because I'd heard the, the Mulray show and I loved it because he played a lot of sketches and I loved sketch comedy and I, I loved that sort of format. And I was kind of, my brain was kind of geared towards that more than anything. And so I put together a little demo tape on a cassette and send it to the producer and just said, hey, here's some of my stuff. And he wrote back and said, oh yeah, you know, that stuff's good. You know, why don't you send some stuff in? Because what they would do is they would just accept freelance material every week and then select what they thought they liked of yours or didn't like, um, and then they would record. And you didn't even know what they were going to play. And then at the end of the month, they'd send a, a list of, you know, the sketches that they played of yours. And um, I always remember seeing Bruce Griffiths, who's a comedian um, on the circuit. He used to write it. I said, who's this Bruce Griffiths? They're using a lot of his sketches. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what, what I loved is... But what I loved, he was he would yeah. just accept really crazy stuff. And mm. I remember a sketch I wrote, it was just random. It was just like a, a, a hostage situation. It had no relevance to a, an ad parody or anything. It was just this hostage situation. This cop comes down, Sergeant Simon. And I'm like, Sergeant Simon, you know, he's in there. And he's like, oh, I'll take care of it. Don't you worry about that. And the sergeant has this megaphone. He's like, Sergeant Simon says, come out with your hands on your head. Sergeant Simon says, like it was just a, just a stupid Simon says joke. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you'll never go for that. That's so dumb. But he loved it and he played it and he recorded it. And that kind of like, oh, wow, this is, this is great, you know. Now, um, did you have a sense of, because it feels quite charmed, you know, what you've told me so far is, you know, you like you, you hear a, you know, yeah. a call, a siren's call on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> Comedians needed. Yeah. Yeah. You're the only one who applies for the job. <laughs> it leads to, you know, writing sketches for radio and then you go to Sydney and then suddenly, you know, you're submitting sketches to the, you know, the most iconic sort of, you know, Sydney comedy radio show. Did it feel... Did you feel like you were pursuing a career in the arts at that point? Like, or did, like, what were you doing? Like, were you, as in, like, what, where did you, where were you in your life? What did you think you were doing with your life at that point? I knew I wanted to do that, but it was, certainly yeah. wasn't sustaining a, a sort of a career or a life. I was still having to do other jobs um, along the way. And I know, I know my parents, I know my mum would often say, oh, Gary's just doing this, you know, until he can get another job or something, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> But I, I did, I remember I, I thought oh, I need to get other work and so I got a job as a spruker. Um, you don't really see them these days, but spruikers outside shopping, in shopping centres outside stores. And so I got a job at, at Westfield Plaza and I, I'd have to do four different stores. That they'd sort of every week they'd tell me four different stores and I'd sort of rotate and do half an hour in front of each store, you know, pay less shoes or whatever. It was kind of stuff like that. And I would just improvise. I'd just make it up. Come on, everyone. We're giving away shoes. No, we're not giving away shoes. But now that you're here, why don't you check them out? You know, because they're great shoes. They pay less shoes. Yeah. And I would just wrap it on like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people would stop. They'd just go, who's this, who's this clown? You know, who's this idiot? Um, and it was, you know, it was paying like $50 an hour. So I thought, wow, this is great money. And, um, and I remember I got approached 
by another shopping center. This guy came up to me and he said, hey, man, why mm. don't you come and uh, – I, wanna, I like. Yeah. I like what you're doing. I like here. what you're doing here. You know, this is really, you wanna, really different. You want to? Yeah. You know, I've got a, I've got a little two dollar shop that I think really need your help right now, and uh, there's this sort of little delicatessen. They're struggling. We need you. We need you, Gary. Come on, help us out. Um, and I'm like, oh, look. To be honest, I really want to give this up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I don't want to get promoted through the system. I don't want, and I'm, I am nervous about that. I, I sometimes pull yeah. back on stuff where I go, oh, you know what, if I, if I wanted to, I could just stay in this and, and, you know, and keep pursuing it or, you know, that's why I never wanted to get a job. I never wanted to go get a real job um, and actually earn decent money. Cause I thought once I do that, I'm sort of trapped. I can't, I'll buy a car, maybe I'll buy a property and now I've got to service that and I've got to keep a job that pays that. And I just thought, well, if I don't get a job, then I will never have that sort of money. I can just perf- pursue stand-up and comedy and and I'll never know what I could have had. I'll just keep doing that until it mm-hmm. kind of pays off. Because um, I, 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 it's kind of I, – it's something I, I – I, I think that's super smart, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, like I think part of it is that if you have a fallback position that you naturally will fall back on it. But the other one is that you do. You get in, integrated into the you know, infrastructure mm-hmm. – of a job, like Friday night drinks. Yeah. Suddenly you're not doing a gig on Friday night because they do work drinks on Friday night and you want to go to work yeah. drinks because that's, you know, you work in the office and you don't want to be a small sport or whatever it might be. You know, that thing of going, I'm not going to drive. I've been working all week or, you know, yeah. You, I remember at different times in my life where, um, you know, I've earned more money than other times. One of the best things that I have ever done is I never developed an expensive habit of any kind. Like sometimes I bought more expensive versions of the things that I already liked. Like, but the, the, tr- the good thing about that is you can then yeah. just go back to the cheaper version of that. Like you haven't bought into yeah, something totally. that is unsustainable. I don't have a boat. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of just pursuing something that if you really love it, you know, and, yeah. and I say to young people today, you know, I just say, look, just, don't listen to your parents necessarily. Don't listen to your teachers necessarily. Listen to yourself. And if you really want to do something and you really want to pursue something that's creative, that perhaps isn't, you know, it doesn't sort of pay those big rewards like you read about it, becoming a lawyer, I said just do it, pursue it, but just learn to make a living from it. That's all you got to do. That's the caveat. You know, follow what you're really passionate about, but the caveat is you've just got to learn to make a living from it. And that's what you've yeah. got to work hard at doing. Yeah, you've got to work out a way to yeah get people to pay you to be able to do it. That's that's really amazing to me. So where did that come from for you? Like you know, in, like you you talk about this internal recognition that it was something that you thought you could mm. do, and clearly, you know, if like mums, you know, at least you know, saying sometimes, oh well, you know, Gary will do this until he gets a real job. There's got to be a sense of that you inside you had something that told you this is my place, this is where I should be, this is mm. what I should be doing. What was that? Where did that come from? I think I've always loved comedy. and I, I can always remember moments in my life where something funny just really took hold of me. And I, the, the first time was seeing the movie Flying High uh-huh. in, in the cinema. At the time, I had a, a paper run in Sydney. We were living in Tempe and I would – 
So I was earning good coin. I was earning $33 a week. <laughs> right? I'm 10 years old, $33 yeah. a week. Bad. And yeah, it's great money. It was it's actually I'll give you an idea I, how far the money went. I I could go I could catch the train into the city, go to McDonald's, go and see a movie for $5.50. So, all the paper boys used to go together on the weekend and we'd go into town and we'd, you know, we'd live it up. Yeah. And, yeah. and I remember going to see with the guys this movie Flying High, you know. Yeah. And I, and I saw it and I just went, "Oh my god, this is so funny." This is so funny. I love this kind of humor. Where's this been, right? And then I thought, ah, oh, the next week I just went in by myself and I saw it again. And I just thought, ah, oh, you know, this is so funny. I'd love to be that funny. You know, I just thought, where does this come from? What kind of the brain um, is, is coming up with that? And so once I sort of, sort of saw that, and I have two older brothers too who would always kind of feed me comedy stuff. Um, you know, Steve Martin, I, I, I used to kind of watch just his films. I loved his films, you know, all these kind of the, um, uh, the jerk and, you know, the man with two brains and dead men don't wear played. I loved all these early stuff and I really got into that silly kind of humor. Um, and then I remember my brother coming back from the States and bringing, um, the first ever book of Gary Larson. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 he goes, oh, you should read this. It's really funny. And I went, oh, yeah, and cartoons. Yeah, I like cartoons. And I just remember reading it thinking, oh, this is so funny. I'm just crying with laughter. Yeah. Everyone was just comedy gold. And, and I just, I think I just, I just, I knew I had this kind of sense of, oh, wow, I, I, I'd love to do some comedy. I want to do comedy. But I'd never thought you would, I'd be able to pursue it the way I did. And as I, it's, it's, all that makes a lot of sense to me though, because you're so, you're someone who's so good at using your words, like, you know, comedically, right? Like, you know, I mean, you've obviously done a lot of comedy writing. It, that makes a lot of sense. But even in your stand up, you've always been somebody who's, you know, been a good user of words. It's mm. the way that you place the words mm. and construct the words that's been like a lot of what you do. And to hear those influences, you know, flying high, I mean, that is just, it's just hundreds of jokes and just these perfect joke jokes but Gary Larson the same like somebody asked me the other day they said what's what do you think like is like your just favorite joke I was asking something like what's the perfect joke and I said well I've got to quote you something that isn't a joke a comedian said I'm going to quote you a a far side cartoon because I think that the joke that gets the most done in the smallest Mm. amount of time is Midvale School for the Gifted, you know, the kid pushing the <laughs> yeah, pool door yeah. with the Midvale. To me, that is just, that's it. That's like a perfect joke. Yeah. I could talk to you for an hour about everything that mm. is just pitch perfect about that joke. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everything <clears throat> that he did was, and I, I, come to re, I came to realize that it's, it's perfect in the sense that it's the perfect master shot as well. Like it's, it's all the detail, all the jokes, everything's lined up. You couldn't actually position those characters any other way it's it's that to elicit the laugh and 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 you're right i mean just the simple i like you know the that other one i like as well which is similar to that you know bummer of a birthmark how mm. and it's the, oh, the, yeah. the, <laughs> the the deer's got the bullseye as a birthmark um but even one i always loved it there was even silly ones and i think that's why i always gravitated to the sillier ones you know where and it was simple. There was no word said. It was uh, just the um, you see you see the the farmer's the farmer's wife walking back from the the chicken hen with a basket of eggs, and then walking the other way 
is the chicken with a baby? <laughs> but it's the look on the chicken's face that kind of sells it. It's not. It's it's just this look of like, well, I can show you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna take my eggs. Well, I'm gonna take one of yours. <laughs> but the, the great genius of Gary Larson was that there wasn't any speech bubble that says, like, you took my baby, I'm going to take your – like, you know, it. it was left for you to – well, the joke kind of worked without you getting that, but it also then was there mm. for that fuller story to be told. I mean, genius. Like, oh, honestly, genius, yeah. just – and particularly for people who are interested in comedy and comedy writing, like, such brilliant mm. – Short stories told in the shortest of all possible ways. Incredible stuff. Yeah, I mean, even just, I mean, and I, I was just alluding to this before, but just the way he would set up the cartoon, you know, and I, I realised that's what you need to do in a film when you set up a master shot, is the master shot has to be layered perfectly so everything's kind of, is if you only had that master shot to use, that it's still got to sell everything. And he was so, so great at doing that. And so I'm interested in how you look at things because like you've written, but like, you know, like film direction, like, you know, you do think about things visually as well as like the writing itself. And so how much of when you look at something, I mean, I'm sure that it is obviously project specific, what you're working on demands different parts of that. But when you're seeing a joke or seeing a bit of comedy or seeing a sketch, are you just seeing the words on the page or do you see it? in that constructed way? You know, is there a visual element to it as well? I think there is a visual element. I think I usually see things visually first and kind of imagine that and then work out how to write it, you know. Because I, I don't think I'm a great writer. I'm not someone who's like, oh, my God, you know, I'm a perfect wordsmith and it just comes out effortlessly. You know, I have to work really hard at that element of things. But in terms of just coming up with ideas and imagining them and visualizing them, I get that a lot. So I've got a lot of that, which is probably some, something that hasn't been diagnosed. <laughs> but, um, no, it's been commercialized. It's been commercialized. Of exactly. so, yeah. <laughs> I go to the doctor, Gary, we've got good news and bad news. Well, <laughs> we've been able to commercialize what you have. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've, we've found a way it can earn your money. It's actually better than us fixing it. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if we went to a doctor and that's what yeah. the doctor said? You know? so we got, look, we've got two choices. <laughs> you can commercialize this or yeah. you can just, you know, yeah. hold on to or it. We can cure it. We can cure yeah. it. Oh, yeah, three. You got yeah, the three things. You can, you can, you can, we can leave you how you are. Yeah. We can cure it or we can commercialize it. They're your three choices. And you're always going to go with the last one. <laughs> I mean, Rain Man's like, you know, pretty annoying if you can't take him to the casino is the kind of, you know, theme of yeah. that movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> That's true. Uh, okay, yeah. so you love these sort of, you know, the, you know, Gary Larson flying mm. high. This is where you start to love comedy. But when you, you know, you do some gigs at the – you've been studying at uni. What were you studying at UC? So I was doing um, uh, communications, advertising and marketing. Mm. Okay. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay. So, like, we would have done pretty yeah. – so I did communications journalism. So right. we would have had some overlapping yeah. subjects, I imagine. And, like, the years would have been pretty close to each other because you – when did you finish? So I finished 91 – did I finish yeah. 91 and a half? I think I took an extra six months. Um, so I'm going to say that I landed there in 92. So I just missed like right, I, one in, one out. Oh, so you started in 92 or you've yeah, uh, 92. in Canberra yeah. University? 
92, 93, 94, I reckon, is when I was Oh, well, you were at Canberra Uni. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you just left, mate. It was the legend of Gary Eck at that, that legend. Point. <laughs> well, I, was a, I was a bit of a legend in a sense. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard that story um, where my first week of Canberra Uni. Um, oh, hang on. Tell me. So, And this, this was a bit of a legend throughout yeah. my whole uni days there. I had to sort of live with this. But it was my first week. Um, and at the time I wasn't doing communications. I was doing some other kind of like business economics, really dull and boring. And I ended up switching because I thought, oh, I, I, you know, I really don't want to do this. And I, and I had to work so hard. And then I switched to communications and I was like, whoa, this is, you know, this is a bit easier to be honest. Um, but I, I still held on to, uh, my sub, I doing, I was doing like a sub major in economics, which I quite enjoyed. Uh -huh. And I was doing, so this unit I was doing was, you know, macroeconomics and it was the first week back, um, or well, first week of term. And, uh, I go there and, um, I'm in the lecture theater and I'm, there's one seat left. Cause you know, when the, when the, when the, the term starts, everyone turns up to the, you know, to the lectures and then they realize you don't have to actually turn up and. And then you just go to the library and borrow the cassette to listen. <laughs> you have to go to the library and borrow the cassette of the lecture. And someone's, someone else has always got it. So you've got to yeah. put your name down. Well, I'll listen to it on Tuesday at this time and, you know, go and put it in the cassette player. But um, anyway, I get there and the lecture theatre is packed. There's one seat down the front. So I go down the front. I'm just sitting there, you know, I've got my, doing my work and, the lecturer is this, you know, really quite serious lady. And anyway, there's this commotion up the back and this, this girl, this, this commotion up the back and the lecturer stops and she, she says, look, what's, what's going on up the back? Can we sort this out, please? Trying to do a lecture here. And this girl appears and she says, um, is, is Gary Eck there? Right. And I'm right, I'm right down the front and I'm like, oh, that's my name. Right. And then I, I just put my hand up. And the lecturer's like, well, well, go on, sort it out. Right? I'm like, oh, and I'm fearing the worst. I'm thinking, oh, my God. Yeah. And everyone stopped because they're all looking for of a distraction. Course. They're going, here's this, you know, this pretty girl up the back. There's yeah. Gary down the front. And she's asking for him. Everyone's gone silent. I'm, my heart's pounding because I'm thinking, oh, there's, there's been an accident. This, 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 this is bad news. Right. And so I start walking up, you know, because it's elevated. Um, the stairs and I'm walking up and, and at this moment, it's kind of all slow motion horror kind of moment. She's walking to me. She's got this big smile on her face mm. and I'm going, no, no. And she holds up this plastic bag and at the top of her voice, she says, your mum's brought you your lunch. Oh no. Oh no, Gary. No, no. I, I swear. And I, you know, I, no. I could, in the, the horror moment, I could see the apple. I could see the banana. No. I, could see, I could see the sandwich, the yo play that I used to put in the freezer no. with, the, with the spoon. Right, I could just Gary. see it all there in such detail. And the lecture theatre just erupts oh. in laughter. Like my God, yeah, man, it was <laughs> the, the, the lecturer who I'd never saw smile is just in tears. Right, oh. she's crying with laughter. Oh. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm doing what you're doing. Going, no, no, this is impossible. This is impossible. Oh my god! And it was, oh my god! And, and your mum hadn't done this on purpose to embarrass so you, my, right? No, my mum was at home, realised I'd left my yeah. lunch. She thought oh, I'll go and drop it off. So she goes yeah. to Canberra University. She 
parks the car, she goes to admin, yeah. right, mm -hmm. and she walks up and she says, um, look, I'm looking for Gary Eck. And they're like, well, we don't give out, you yeah. know, locations of students. He goes, well, I'm his mother and he's forgotten his lunch. Um, and they're like, oh, okay, uh, well, um, yeah, I, I guess maybe, uh, you know, well, where is he? Where would he be right now? And <laughs> so they give her the room and she actually walks there. Her intention was to go in there yeah. and give it to me. And give it to you. But she couldn't see me because I'm right down the front. So she gets this girl up the back who she's, you know, gets her attention and, <laughs> and sort of says, you know, calls her out because, you know, they have that tiny little window that you, you, you have yes. to look through. Calls her out and says, "You know, um, oh, Gary. I know. <laughs> she's oh, all, Gary. You know, do, you, do you know Gary Eck?" And the girl's like, "No, I don't know Gary Eck." And she goes, "Well, he's forgotten his lunch." And this girl just goes, "Oh my god, opportunity! I this mean, is good." Her eyes light I, up. I imagine she goes, "I'll like, give this it to is the best." <laughs> and the, the reason I say it became a bit of legend, it did. It got around so fast. Of course, fast. it would have. Ah oh, man, people. I'd just be walking along, and I'd, I'd just random mm. person go, "Got your lunch." Uh, yeah, I got my lunch. Thanks, mate. Yeah, very, very funny. I'd go to the cafeteria but, and, of course, everyone would just be uh, like, oh, there's that guy. He's, 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 that's him. Hey, yeah, it's the guy. Hey, hey, mate, you got, you, you got food? You got your lunch? Got your lunch this, here, where, this is where we get lunch. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I know. So how does that go, though? Because if that – I mean, God, that's making me break out in hives hearing that story like 30 years later. So, like, how is it when you're – in this new environment, you know, making new friends, oh. like establishing yourself to then be the, you know, Gary forgot his lunch <laughs> yeah. guy. I, well, I, be I became LBK, the lunchbox kid, yeah. because oh. <laughs> that's that was the kind of the moniker I got, you know, hey, LBK, how you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm good, thanks. And I think, look, I was always one that could give yeah. it back to someone. So yes. I, I, if you wore it well, yeah, you were. Yeah, yes. And I would laugh it off and, you know, I, it didn't really matter. But it still stuck like years. I remember like <laughs> of course. five years later I'm doing a, a dive course up in Cairns and it's one of those I had to go on a boat and I spent three days on the reef. On the first day there's this guy he's looking at me and he's taking off his wetsuit and I'm looking at him and I'm going, oh, well, this is weird. <laughs> and, then, and then he comes up to me and he says, are you Gary Eck? Oh, no. And I thought, oh, yeah, no, you know, I've been doing a bit yeah. of stand-up. I thought yeah, I've seen course, one right? of my shows. Yes. And he goes, your mum, you bought you yeah. a lunch, right? I remember. <laughs> I was there. I was there. Oh, my I God, it's there. you. I, yeah, I bet. I was there. I bet there's like 10,000 people yeah. who claim they were there that day in that lecture the day that happened. <laughs> yeah, were you there? Yeah, I was pretty – I'm pretty certain I was oh, there. Oh, yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah, I was there. I was there, wasn't it? It was four years before. I was there. I'm going to – like in the future when I tell people that story, I'll be like, you, <laughs> one of my favourite things that happened to me when I was at Cambridge <laughs> University. <laughs> yeah, I was there doing macroeconomics, right? There's this young yeah. guy called Gary Egg down the front. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. It was. Oh yeah. It was. Um, oh man. Probably that's a, that. What a great story. That I mean, that's amazing. And like, is Mum the sort of person that, like, did she just not think about the fact that you were an an adult in that situation, and that it wouldn't be great for your mum for Mum to rock up? She just was like, he's forgotten yeah. his lunch. I should take it. Just didn't even consider. No. You know the whole you're out on your own and establishing your own identity and. Yeah. No, no, my maybe. my mum is very sort of um, pragmatic <laughs> and and just goes, well, yeah. I'll go do that. That seems yeah. the obvious thing to do. I mean, my mum used to have a job where she, she worked at, it was like a Coles 
you know, where they used to set up food displays and you'd go up and, would you like to try the new Chico oh, yeah, roll? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whatever it was, it was always a different food. And she was, and she'd move around Sydney into different coals and she had some incident with some manager there or something. And she wasn't happy and tried to report it. Nothing was done. So my mum just thought, well, I'll go to the top. So she oh. hopped on a train. She went into, used to be, he, Coles mm-hmm. headquarters used to be in town hall and went into the head office and said, I'd like, I'd like to speak to the CEO. <laughs> and the person goes, oh, do, you, do you have a meeting? And she goes, no, I'll wait. So she just sat down and waited. And the receptionist is like, oh. And my mum just sat there, like just kept waiting, kept waiting. And eventually the CEO comes out and says, you know, Alice, uh, come in. Uh, can, I, can I talk to you? What, what seems to be the problem? Mum told him the story. And he was like, well, thank you for telling me that. I'll, I'll take care of it. And so this guy, apparently, I don't know what he was doing. I think it was kind of sexual harassment or something. And uh, yeah. yeah, and he was, he was, he was gone. Yeah. He took care of it. So, <laughs> it's a, so yeah. it's, I mean, in a way, it's quite a good lesson. Well, it's a value, the one thing I learned, and it's a valuable lesson, is that mm. go to the top. Always go to mm. the top. If you've got a problem, don't try and solve it at the bottom because their job is not to solve it. Their, mm. bo- their job is to ignore it. That's like whenever I get a telco and I've got an issue or anybody, I just go, look, mate, put your, your supervisor on. I want to speak to your boss. I want to go to the top. Just get me to the top because their job is to solve problems. You know, they've got the authority. And so it's, it's kind of a, look, it, it's a very bold thing to do. But, you know, had she not done that, nothing would have got done. Uh, I mean, it is a good lesson, though. Mm. I think that is a, a because it's everybody else's job to stop it getting from the top. Yes, like basically they're playing defense because the person at the top knows once it gets to them, they do have to do something yeah. about it. <laughs> so, like, it's basically everyone else yeah. is like put in place to stop you ever like you know it either gets resolved or um, battered away somewhere underneath <laughs> that chain. So she's just gone all the way around. It's true. I ask yeah. people. So, I, well, I asked – this is probably not a bad place to ask this mm. question because I ask people on this show whether they have a life philosophy. Mm. And we've just heard one of your mum's, like, you know, life philosophies and something you've learned from her, which is just go straight to the top. So do you have – like, do you – are you the sort of person that has, you know, life mottos or philosophies or, you know, like, you know, kind of prisms through which you guide, you know, any aspects of your life, life, work, love, whatever. It doesn't really matter. And also – an appropriate response to this question is also no, if you don't. Like but any of the above are appropriate. No, I, I do. I mean, one thing, and I, I've probably only really reflected on this, you know, recently in a way, is that I, I try to remain naive. And I think that's something I try to stick by because naivety kind of keeps you pumped, keeps you going. And if you kind of knew how, so, how difficult something was, uh-huh. you're more likely not to do it. If you know the facts, because when I started out, I was very naive. I had no idea. Oh, let's make a film. That could be, that'd be easy, you know, but the reality is it's incredibly difficult. And when you get to a position in your life where you actually know how difficult something is and how much work's involved and, and, and all the rewriting and doing this and doing that, it's very easy to go, ah, I couldn't be bothered. But I try and remain naive and go, yeah, I can do this. It'll be fine. I'll get, I'll, I'll find a way. Something will happen. This will be good. And I think that naivety is something that keeps me driv- dri- you know, driven in that, in that regard. 
Um, and I love it. Yeah, I love. I, I mean, I think that's such a wonderful perspective because. I think about this a lot because, like, there's part of me that, you know, I assume this is natural, I don't know, but certainly there's part of me that will often have those moments where you go, oh, God, I wish I knew then what I know now, right? Like, you know, you just think if I knew, if I'd known then what I know now about, like, but the opposite side of that is if I knew then how hard, you know, mm. if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have started. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, you know, I wouldn't have done yeah. it because it was the naivety that allowed me in the door in the first place. And I, I think, you know, and I, I think that's what keeps you curious, you know. It just keeps you kind of focused in a way because it just keeps you energised. I just think, gosh, if I really think about it, and, I, and that's probably the difference between what people, you know, the difference between people doing stuff and people not doing stuff is they're no longer naive, they're very aware. And so they go, oh, guys, that sounds like hard work. Um, so and it, it, it kind of combines with my other line, which I, I tell people to do as well, you know. No, I don't tell people to do. That's, 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 I don't mean like that. But um, I always say follow through. You've got to, if you start something, follow through uh -huh. and finish it. Don't just start it. I don't want to hear that you're writing a book. Tell me when you've written the book. Written a book. You know, yeah. if you're going to write a screenplay, okay, great. Everyone can start a yeah. screenplay, but not many people follow through and actually finish it. So what, and I just say, look, it doesn't matter if the end result is absolute crap. Just finish it. Follow through with what you started. And I try and do that with everything I do. I kind of, and even when it's like people are like, wow, are you still work, still working on that? Okay, yeah, I'm going to fucking yeah. finish this if, I, if it kills me, you know. And how do you know when something's finished? Um, either you get it made, you've done it, you know, in that, in that sense. I mean, so that's, yeah, in that sense it's easy. Yeah. But is there times when something's finished <coughs> when there's a point where it's never, like, you know, it just, it doesn't get made <laughs> or it doesn't, like, whatever it is. Is it, is it, is it, or is that thing never finished then? If it doesn't get made, if it doesn't get actualized, if it doesn't get realized, it's, yeah, never finished yeah. at that point. I think the only thing that's going to get in, in the way is death. Right. So, <laughs> reason Gary didn't finish that was yeah, because well, of this thing called death. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. I mean, look, there are certain things that don't get up, and I've had a lot of projects that don't get up and, and never, you know, see the day to light, but they're still there. And it's not like, and I did finish it, like I wrote it. When I say follow through, I mean, like, if you're writing something, if you're writing a spec script, at least write it. Now, if it doesn't get made, if it doesn't happen, that's fine because that's reality, you know, that's, 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 you know, what happens in this industry and in any industry. So, but I kind of go, don't just start something. I don't want to just start something and not finish it. I, no, I agree with that. And look, I mean, I, particularly in that sense of, like you said about like a book or a script, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do stand up. Mm. Just do stand up. Yeah. Like people say to me all the time, they're like, oh, like I'm going to do stand up one day, and I was like, "Why not next week?" Yeah, yeah, like, it's, the there's thing. a pretty pretty low barrier of entry to <laughs> like to achieve that one. You could really knock that off because the starting isn't the the point. It's like you said, it's the following through of it all that is. And by the way, you're allowed to also just treat some things as if they're not. I think it's a good differentiation, mm. right? There's the person you're like, I'd just like to try it once, like yeah. in the same way as I'd like to skydive mm. or whatever. Great, that's fine. Then your aim is just to do it once and then just do it once. Yeah. Or I'd like to write a script for myself. It doesn't need to be made into mm. 
a movie, I'd just like to, you know, write a, like a movie, like do it myself. Yeah, fair enough. Like and, and the ambitions don't need to be the same. I guess that's why I asked the question, when do you know you're finished? Because like mm. sometimes, I don't know, like sometimes do you have to put something away so that you can move on to something else or does it just stay there? Like say you've been working on a project, it stalls for the you know million reasons that a project can store and you need to move on to something else. Can you just put it in a drawer, shut that file on the computer or whatever it is that you do and move on to the next thing? Or is there a, a part of you that is in that other project? Are you better at – these are all the same question asked in different ways, I think, but are you better at working at a lot of things at the same time? One thing, like just focusing on it, like what's the best way to sort of, you know, allocate your creative energy, I guess? Well, it is a numbers game in this industry and things take longer and shorter than, than you kind of anticipate. So I have to keep a lot of plates spinning. I'm that guy that you see down at the wharf with eight fishing rods out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you walk along going, hey, catching anything? Yeah. And then I go, oh, I've you know, had a couple of bites, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and then, and then that, that little rod, that, that little shitty yeah. rod that you thought would catch nothing, suddenly, yeah. you know, and you're, oh, wow, I've got something big. And you, it was unexpected. And I, I, that does happen a lot. So you might be kind of fixated on one project and you kind of got this other little one. And then suddenly someone goes, oh, I really love that idea. And, you know, suddenly that's suddenly, oh, wait a minute, there's something there. Um, so I do keep a few projects happening, but I do put things away. Like I started writing a, a screenplay and then I just thought, oh, this, it's a, it was a kind of a period piece. And I just went, it's going to be expensive, you know? Um, and at the time I just thought, oh, it's going to be harder to get up, but the idea is still there. And I keep thinking about it all the time. You know, it's like a sort of a, a child, you, you know, you, you just, it's just there, you know, <laughs> it just, I'll get back to you. I've got all these other children I need to attend to, but, um. But yeah, in a create in a creative sense, are you a person who like do you like to have like you know like you said you got all those fishing rods? Is it better when you are just concentrating on one rod, or is there something about the like I mean, there's a practicality to the eight rods, but is it creatively? like inspiring or when you're working on something, do you need to like, you know, shut it down to a cone of silence around that one particular project? Like how, not in a practical sense, but in a creative sense, an ideal creative sense, how do you work best? That's, that would be ideal when I just go, wow, I'm, I'm just got this one idea. But often it's, the ideas take so long to eventuate that you're kind of forced to do other things at the same time. Because even when, I mean, I'll give you a good example. So, Oh, I would have been maybe eight years ago. Um, I had this idea about um, a, a kids' animation show called, you know, as vegetables as dinosaurs, um, called Veggie Sauce. Right? It was about eight years ago. And imagine like Triceratops and P. Rexes and bok choy dactyls and broccoliosaurus <laughs> and it's done in this wildlife documentary series uh -huh. idea with like a David Attenborough. I thought, wow, that's really fun. I've never seen that. Kids had loved that. And so I teamed up with a, a, a mate that I'd worked on Happy Feet 2 with who was a storyboard artist and illustrator and we, we did this little animatic and we 90-second proof of concept, really rough but with sound and, you know, got my mate Lee Perry to do a David Attenborough voice and – and it looked great. And then we're like, oh, what do, we, what do we do with this? And we sort of realized 
oh, we, you know, we're going to need a lot of money to make this. And I didn't know anyone in the sort of TV animation <laughs> industry. And so it just, it just sat there for like two years. It just, we couldn't really think of anything to do with it. And then Nick just happened to know someone at a production company, an animation company, and we sent it to them. Um, and they went, oh, we really love this idea. We'd, we'd like to do something with it. And so we developed it. We sort of rewrote stuff and created concept art and just kept pushing it for almost three years. And so, and they shopped it around markets and the market really loved the idea. So even when the market loves the idea, it still took three years to eventually get green lit. Um, and it became, you know, Ginger and the Veggie Sauce, which is on ABC right now. Um, yeah, and it's like a little kid's animation, but that took eight years to happen. Um, to actually realize that. So when you add up the, you know, all that time, I can't just wait for that moment, you know, so you have to keep jumping on other projects and jumping on other things. And, and, and then you suddenly go, Oh, wow, that one's that rod, rod number four, a big fish has just taken it now. It's but that rod's been out for, you know, for eight years and suddenly now it's got a bite. So it, it is frustrating. I do sometimes get mentally exhausted. I'm like, Oh man, you know, I look at, the Powerball, and I go, oh, if I just won that, yeah. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I could just. So if you did win it, like, because I, I, I mean, this, I always like, think yeah. this is a bit of an insight into, you know, how you think about the world. So say, let's pick a number, let's pick a good number. It's like a 30 million Powerball, yeah, right? yeah. like, you know, a really good mm. life changing, you know, never have to work again, you know, yeah. amount of money, right? $30 million. And so you win the Powerball, the numbers come up, like, what does your life look like if you if you win the Powerball? Well, fucking better than yours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, to be honest, you know, I, I wouldn't actually change what I'm doing, but there would yeah, be a, so that's the question. That's the right? question. You know what? I would still yeah. do stand up gigs. I would still just do you know um, regular comedy gigs. You know, I'd still be at the boat shed or Oatley Hotel or whatever. Um, but the weird thing is people are like, Gary still invoices for 200 bucks. Can you believe it? And he just won 30. Because yeah. <laughs> I'd still go, no, I'm still going to invoice you because I don't yeah. wanna, I don't, I'm not a charity. I'm going to still, right. you know, invoice for the gig. Yeah, if, I, if you're not paying, yeah. you don't value yeah, me. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's what I do. You know, I've worked so hard to get to this point where people pay you yeah. to be funny. I'm not going to stop that. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I would definitely – it would be easier in the sense I'd probably fund a lot of my own stuff, you know, pilots and, you know, getting, getting that proof of concept much faster and quicker. You know, I'd make a film, I'd just go and do it because I'd have the money, you know. It's amazing though, isn't it, the amount of, I, I think, the people that that's all they want is just the money to pursue the opportunity. Yeah. Like it's rare that the answer to that is someone going, oh, well, I'm just going to buy a boat and go and live in the ocean. Yeah. And like you never need to hear from me again. Like, you know, so often that the toughest thing of all is that there's just not the money there to have that investment in the ideas, you know, to create what it is that you want to create. And all all people are is just so desperate for yeah. Yeah, the money to fulfill those things and make them them happen. That's a really good point you make, actually. I never really thought of it about that. You know, people work so hard to kind of avoid what they're doing in life. You know, if they got the money, it's they want to get out of there. They want to get out of their life. They want to never see that life again. They go, oh, thank God, I don't have to do that anymore. 
Whereas I think what you and I both do is something that we just, we want to do this and we don't want to stop it. And if money came into our lives, like a lot of money, all it does is just propel that kind of just like putting a Bunsen burner under it. And suddenly you go, well, you know what, that, uh, you know, that little pilot I wanted to make, I'm going to go do it now. I'm going to go shoot it. I'm going to have this. I'm going to, I'm going to cast it and I'm going to make it. And then I'm going to shop it around. And it's going to be much faster than having to beg for money. Um, so it's really, it is, it's a really good point. Like, you know, winning all the money, my life doesn't change. It just, it just kind of makes it slightly easier. You know? Yeah. I mean, I've got mine picked out. Like if I, same scenario, yeah. I don't know what this would cost, but it would cost less than that. I want, like, I would buy like a, like a build, a multi-purpose building, basically, mm-hmm. you know, comedy venue, mm. somewhere that they could shoot, they could record radio. I would make it like a modern day version of like a creative space, like Andy Warhol's The Factory, where like yep. musicians could come in and use, like record, yep. like comedians could use it, people could shoot stuff there. It would be a space where people could collaborate mm. with each other, like put on shows, like, yeah. and people would just, and it would all be just like, funded right like yeah. Yeah, so people could like and i mean the truth of it is that someone could fund something like that now like <laughs> so people have enough money yeah. to, to make that dream a reality now but yeah it's interesting it's probably not a bad sign that if you won the lotto you wouldn't want to leave your job you just want to have more capacity to do your job or like be more creative with your job that's probably not yeah. a bad sign it's funny i've had i've had that exact thought as well like a sort of like a, a venue like like what is, what's that what's is it what's so what's the the workspace um uh, oh i know what you mean but i can't uh, remember the name of it either not what if it's not i always thought what if would be good space no. for creativity because that's the question you ask isn't it even in yeah. comedy well, that's a funny story, but what yeah. if this happened in the story? That's a better story, so I might tell that story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, which is pretty much the art of comedy, isn't it? Like something happens to us, it's a funny story, yeah. but our comedic brain go, goes, yeah, that's yeah. funny, but what if this what if? had happened? Yeah. That's an even funnier story, so I'm going to tell yeah. that story. Yeah. What if they had said this? Yeah. And what if this had happened before that rather than <laughs> after that what if that that would be a better but that's way to storytelling that story. right and that's of course and that's is. across everything everybody does that so yeah i mean a space called what if would be great i would mm. definitely do that and i'd probably open up a little comedy club i've always wanted a little cool kind of comedy club i think that'd be fun yeah you i know. agree i would that's definitely i'd love that it would be fun so okay so yeah. I, i'm super let's fast win. okay so yeah. let's, let's win, win lotto power, together power. yeah exactly ball, we'll get a syndicate we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get a syndicate together and then the two things we have to do is open a creative space and uh, a comedy club <laughs> But that'd be true. I mean, if I had a comedy club, you'd just, you'd pop down there and, you know, you just hang. And it's the one thing I really miss about Mm. comedy now versus when I started out. Because when I started out, and you were the same, there weren't a lot of comedy venues. So there was like, when I, in Sydney, there was a comedy store in the Harold Park Hotel. So everyone used to just go to the Harold Park Hotel, even when you weren't working. You didn't, you weren't on, but everyone just sort of hung out there. And so you had this real community you got to know everyone and it was, a, it felt like a comedy space. Um, and that's very fragmented now because there are rooms everywhere and, you know, people just, um, you know, pop in. I, and I sometimes get annoyed with young comics, you know, you're doing a show and they just pop in and pop out. I go, man, why don't you stick around and watch the headline act or something? You know, why don't you stick around and meet the other comedians? Yeah. <laughs>
I often think this is one of those where you, where you don't know whether you're being an, like an old yeah. man, like an old-fashioned old man, the young – but it's the conversation I have with older comedians all the time is just like – because we did. Well, I think partly the reason is just very basic, which is in our day – the best way to see comedy was to stick around at the gig that you were at to see comedy. Whereas now you could go home and watch like a Netflix special or go on YouTube or like yeah. you, the, the access to comedy from all over the world is probably so great that people don't feel that they need to stay and watch it in that room. But it still doesn't make a lot of sense to me that people wouldn't do that. Like, I mean, I like to do it still. Mm. And it's not even about like learning necessarily, but just seeing what people are up to yeah. or who's doing what or just because I like comedy. Like mm. I like to see people do comedy. Yeah, I, I like me too. I, I, I like watching the craft. I, you know, if it's someone mm. I haven't seen, I'm like, okay, let me – you can kind of watch someone and go, oh, wow, they've got a lot of potential. You know, I love their stuff. Right. You know, I reckon they're going to – if they kept at it, they could, you know, they could probably do something with it. Um, but then they disappear and you don't ever get to talk to them. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, I remember, I, you know, I remember looking at, you know, I've still got the, like, lineup sheets for the Harold Park Hotel, you know, like, you know, Carl Barron, Kitty Flanagan, Peter Burner, James O'Loughlin, all on the, you know, all on the one night, yeah. you know. That's because we all kind of just went down there. Um, and, you know, you, you don't see that that often these days. Well, I mean, I think about it from the perspective that, like, I was in Melbourne, you know, when I first started out, and you would hear about Sydney comedy, like, and who was, you know, kind of the, you know, basically the comedians that Melbourne comedians thought were good in Sydney, yeah, yeah. you know, that very snobby yeah, Melbourne sort of attitude a... of, like, but it wasn't the old school Sydney scene of the Rodney Roods yeah. and the ostentatiouses and whatever. They seemed a bit, like, uncool mm. for the the Melbourne crowds, but this next generation, like you said, literally those names you're talking yeah. about and yourself and Akmal and Anthony Murr and like these were the names we would hear about. Mm. We would hear, you know, Berner and O'Loughlin and Kitty Flanagan and like these mm. were – and yeah, that was this kind of emerging scene, yeah. right, of like these – this next generation of what Sydney comedy yeah. for the sake of calling it that because there had been a more confrontational or – I don't know, like just harder-edged like stand-up that came before that perhaps in Sydney? Yeah, I mean, I, that era, I think of the comedy store. I mean, they, the comedy store used to advertise come heckle the comedians. I mean, they yeah, used right. to actually promote that. So it was that era of kind of George Smelovich and Vince Sorrenti yeah. and Ostentatious and Rodney Roode. And so it had that – and they sort of came out of the pub circuit too. They often would come and perform in pubs and – and so it, it sort of had a bit more of this kind of, you know, harder edge to it and less storytelling because you didn't have the time to go, well, you know, funny thing happened to me, right? So I'm walking down. No, no one, everyone's, get off, mate. We haven't got time for that shit. Say something funny. So it became this kind of much, I guess, yeah. you know, forced to be punchier kind of um, way into stand-up in Sydney. But then, you know, obviously that evolves now and it doesn't exist because, you know, comedic audiences have, very well educated and versed and, you know, no one comes to a comedy room to, to give the comics a hard time. I mean, it's purely by accident if that happens. Um, yeah, well, it's certainly not invited no. anymore. It's not like come along and... No, no imagine that, and, come along and heckle the comedian. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's not really the spirit of what we're doing these mm. days, but it's been interesting. So you've had a really interesting look at 
seeing it go from, you know, like something that still was – I mean, there were comedians, of course, making a good living mm. back then. Yeah. But when you talk about that next generation, this is when it starts to become an industry, right? Like you start to see people – like. You know, I, I use this example quite a lot, which is like, you know, I studied journalism and when I told people I was going to stop doing the very safe job of journalism to go into the very insecure world of stand-up comedy, they thought I was an idiot. Whereas these days, if your kid came to you and said, oh, you know, what's a better career, being a stand-up comedian or being a journalist? Like, it's absolutely the other way. Totally, like, yeah. there are so many jobs around comedy, yeah. you know? Like, even if you're not the person standing on stage, there's an entire mm. industry that is around comedy now. Like, I definitely say if you've got any interest in that like you know there's more prospects than journalism so the world has changed in that time what has it been like to observe that and be part of that of course yeah i mean when when i was doing comedy i mean we i quickly formed with a sort of like a, a sort of a team with anthony murr and akmal and sort of put on like a sketch comedy show with the very intention of trying to make something for television and so we, we started with a live sketch comedy show. Actually, no, we didn't actually. We shot, believe it or not, we shot a, um, a sketch comedy pilot ourselves called Bound and Gagged. Um, made a minor. I went to school with Jason Tutty who shot it. And he's a cameraman and stuff. And it was really edgy. It was really out there. In fact, you can watch it on YouTube. I think it's called Bound and Gagged. This goes back. A long time. So, and, you know, Carl Barron's in it, Kitty Flanagan, Julia Morris, um, all the kind of comics that around the time, we just bunged them in these sketches. And really funny sketches. They were really f- And again, is this the sort of naive? Totally like, naive. You know, like, like, we can just do this? We can just do this. Let's just go make it. You know, hey, mm-hmm. let's just shoot it. Um, you know, it was shot on really old kind of cameras. But we went and, we went and made it. And it was kind of like okay, well now what? And I remember sending it to like Channel 10 <laughs> with, a, with a letter, you know, going, yeah. and they wrote back. And I can imagine at the time, Channel 10, none, none of the networks were looking for diversity like this. They weren't no. looking for two Arabs and a white guy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're not looking for yes. Akmal Sali, Anthony Murr and Gary Eck. <laughs> In a sketch comedy show where you know there's you know sketches about Arabs and I mean we we had yeah. this to, we had this like Tonight Show where you know it was like Anthony Murr's like a um, Tonight Show in, in Saudi Arabia type thing and it was really bold and you know they've got the guest terrorist on and they're, <laughs> and they go look you've been doing some funny stuff haven't you you know that, and he's like oh don't play the video please don't embarrass me don't play you know and we. And we we had this footage of a plane blowing up on a tarmac and he's like, ah, that stuff's so funny. I mean, I can imagine the network or whoever was, was looking at it just going, there's no way we're putting this anywhere near the public. I mean. You know. And so it was, it was kind of frustrating. We always felt, you know, we were at the time like way ahead of our time. Like now mm. the, the networks would be jumping at that diversity. Of course. You know, oh, wow, be. you know, fantastic. We've got two two, you know, two Arabs and that works out really well. And I'd be the problem, you know. Well, can mm. you be ethnic, Gary, by any chance? Um, well, you'd actually, I mean, it'd be technically it'd be better if you were Carrie, yeah, to yeah, be honest, right, yeah. for the sake of the, <laughs> yeah. like, the balance of That's your show. Right, yeah. So <laughs> that'd be fine. That'd be fine. But, yeah, you're right. It was like, I mean, but the humour, it feels like, also was like, 
you know, ahead of its time in regard to like clearly what we were seeing on Australian television. It was really weird. And, but, you know, after we shopped it around and then um, the comedy channel, um, Steve Weizard's company, someone there saw this tape and went, oh, these guys are really funny. And so they gave us a sketch comedy show, which we called the 50 foot show, mm-hmm. which went on the comedy channel um, and aired. And I don't think, I don't think anyone really watched the comedy channel at the time. <laughs> no, the comedy channel was on. It was just though. on. I think it was just something you got for free. When you, when you signed up for Foxtel, the comedy channel came for free. And so, um, but you know, we got to make a sketch comedy mm-hmm. show, which was remarkable. The 50 foot show and, it was. It didn't come out exactly how we we wanted it to. You know, um, we kind of had issues with the way it was kind of put together. But at the end of the day, it was there. It was funny, and there were some really funny ideas. You know, we look back and go, oh, "That was that was hilarious." But um, yeah, you. We've talked about the fact that you know. I mean, like you said, it's the fishing rods, right? Mm. You have so many of them, mm. and like, is there one in particular that? Like you say comedian, so like I, I, my guess is that you think, well, anything where I can be comedic is probably, you know, the natural safe space, whether it be film, whether it be writing books, whether it be writing for someone else, like, you know, whatever. But is there one in particular that is your great passion of the things that you've done? Is it making films? Is it making sketch comedy? Is it stand up? Is it writing? Like, is there one of them that is like when you are doing that thing or making that style, you're like, this is my, this is my sweet spot. This is me in the pocket. And by the way, doesn't have to be the thing that you're best at because I can make a probably compelling argument that like Gruen is probably the most successful thing that I've done in my career, right? Like just on what, if you want to measure things, it's very successful. Like, but I'm not, it's not my sweet spot. Like I've never felt like, oh, this is what I'm great at or this is even what I'm designed to do. It's just like, you know, there are other things in my career where I would say I'm closer to that. So is there one for you which is your – like what's your sweet, your personal sweet spot? That's a good question. I, I, like, I love still performing stand-up and I, I always think I will always do stand-up, you know, because I think it's for me that one – moment where I just get to do me, be me. I can connect with an audience. There's no barriers of entry. There's no one telling me what to do. It's immediate. Um, there's not a delayed gratification. It's not like you make a film, you got to wait a year and then you got to pop into the cinema to see if anyone's reacting to it. Um, it's there and it's, and it, so I still love doing that. And I think I'm always going to be doing stand up in one capacity or another. But I also love storytelling. Just generally, I love creating stories and ideas. And it sometimes doesn't really matter how that ends up. If it does, is it a film? Is it a book? Is it a little kids' TV animation series? I just think, oh, that's a good idea. I love that idea. How do I make that idea? What's the story there? How do I create that? And so sometimes, you know, I I get stuck in projects <laughs> that I go, how did I end up here? What am I? What am I doing? Like I'm working on a. <laughs> Like during COVID, I wrote a um, a, a screenplay, a spec script for a sci-fi because I, you know, I, I kind of, I don't necessarily like sci-fi, but I, I love Black Mirror. I love that idea of, oh, yeah. Yeah. of, of 
you know, taking technology now and amplifying it in a dystopian future or any future and, and imagining life there and what it can do. And, you know, Black Mirror, when I saw Black Mirror, really resonated with me because I used to have, I used to think of all these ideas all the time. And when I, I, I saw that, when that show came out, I was like, oh, wow, this is one show I'd love to write for. And I actually looked it up and I was going to contact them, the production company, and say, look, I'd love to write something, you know. Um, and I, I realized the writer, Charlie Brooker, who's a stand-up comedian as well, writes every single episode. Like he writes them all. Um, so I figured, oh, well, that's probably never going to happen. But so I kind of decided to write this and I kept – I. It just kept getting out of hand in that sense. I kept, you know, going, oh, this could be better. And then I rewrote the draft and, and then I'm like, oh, if I'm going to make this, now I've got to get some, I've, I've got to visualize this world because I don't think people really get what I'm thinking. So I, I got a concept artist to create some concept art and, and to bring the world to life a little bit. And, and then I'm like, well, if I'm going to do this, I should probably try and see how I could make one of these scenes. And then I got this unreal artist um, to, to, to create like an animated 3D scene in Unreal Engine of one of the environments. Um, so it just kept going on. And then during the pandemic, I discovered NFTs. Are you familiar with NFTs? Is that a world that... Uh, I'm, I'm familiar with NFTs. I, in the, I know what an NFT is. Um, am I familiar with well, them on any level more than like knowing what they are? Not, not really. really. Well, no, it... It was really interesting, and I won't I won't go into it too much. But it was it was big during the pandemic. Like it was going yes. off NFTs, non fungible token. tokens. Yeah, I know. It's, okay. Sounds like a, I know. I know that. I don't know anything. I don't really know what that means. I know those words. It's a really. It's it. It's a terrible wor word. I mean, it sounds like something the doctor would diagnose you with. You know, you've yeah. got non-fungible token. Uh, Will is that? That's the good kind, though. That's right? the good kind. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's the, a good kind. That's a good kind. But you know, <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to get fungible token. That's the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't want fungible token. You want non-fungible no. token. Yeah. But I mean, what's really what was interesting at the time is because my son came to me and he said, "Oh, I want to download this app to make this NFT." I'm like, "Oh, that sounds so dodgy." Yeah, I, I, he goes. I need your bank. I need your. Yeah, I need your yeah. bank details so I can download yeah, an app. I'm like, whoa, no, 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 no. Are you not having that? Let me look into this. And I see. You know, I didn't yeah. even realize what an NFT. I didn't even know what an NFT was. I didn't even know what he was talking about. So I said, "What do you mean?" Let me. So I thought I'll investigate this. I'll look at it. And then I just went down this rabbit hole and I discovered this world of. Um, collections what people were doing were building collections around an idea and offering utilities benefits from owning that nft so that if you own this you can get access or you can do this with with this and at the time most of it was just pretty much like a pyramid scheme people were just buying and selling to the next full they were buying nfts knowing that they weren't really worth anything but they knew that but they were selling it to the, a person who also knew that but that person's like, well, I'll get rid of it before <laughs> and, and make a profit, blah, blah, blah. So, but the, this idea of building a collection around a film, a sci-fi film, because I had a lot of the assets became really appealing. So I decided to do that. I thought I'll build this NFT collection around my film and I'll use that as a way to fund the film. Because um, at the time people were making insane amounts of money. It was like, you know, one project – this guy wanted to build a game and he had this NFT collection around, you know, um, the video game that he wanted to make and he raised $70 million. Can you believe it? $70 million. 
and then he made the game and it was complete crap. It was, it was, everyone just went, what the fuck? You know, like that was it. And, and then he just wrote on his Twitter account, sorry, and, and disappeared. (laughs) But, you know, I thought, oh, you know, if I created this NFT collection around a sci-fi film where, you know, the, the, the NFTs gave you special Mm. utilities, like you get to audition for the film, you get to win a chance to have a character named after you. You can get all the behind the scenes footage. You can, yeah. you can get all this access. You can, you know. Yeah. That's like, it's essentially then more like a small investment that you get a reward for. Like having a, it's a, like a Patreon page, but it, like it's a, you're buying like an, like an NFT that offers you the access to that world. It's like or a crypto crowdfund. In, in effect, it's yeah. better because you own something. Like when you buy, when you sign up for a yeah. crowdfund, at the end you still own some of you it. S- like you own a thing. Yeah, you own something, and that can be valuable. Yeah. And some, you know, some of these NFTs, you know, they're still really valuable. You know, mm. but um, so when I, so I did this, but when I went to launch, the market just crashed. Like it went from a like a hundred percent to one percent. Like it was like it just massive tank. Like it's it was like. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is the worst timing ever. Um, but I, I, I went ahead with it anyway. I did it as a free giveaway and we're still doing it. I'm still doing it. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, it's one of these fishing rods that I've just got out there and I, I keep going, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, release all 10,000 of them somehow um, and, and still put it around the film while I'm trying to get finance for the film elsewhere. Um, you know, I'll still keep, doing this NFT collection because you build this little community. I've got like 600 people in my discord that, um, you know, pop in there and, and we have conversations and, you know, how's the film going? Um, <laughs> oh yeah, it's going really well. Um, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, there are these kind of things you go, ah, oh, well, and, and I think it's that part of my brain that goes, Gary, just got to follow through with this. You're going to have to finish this. Mm. You know, that's, that's your commitment now. Can I talk to you about yeah. a, pro- a project you did a very long time? Well, I mean, 20 plus years ago, I guess, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm trying to place where I was when I saw it. So I'm going to say it's about 20 yeah, years ago. Probably. And it was a movie called uh, You Can't Stop the Murders, I believe was the name of it. Is that, am yeah, I right? Yeah, yeah. Rem- I'm remembering that correctly, aren't I? It wasn't called Can't Stop the Murders or You Can't, you can't, stop, can't stop the Murders. Stop the murders yeah. You Can't Stop the Murders. Now, like to still to this day, one of the funniest like Australian films I've ever seen in my life. Like it is so funny. Can you take me back to that time and tell me, you know, how that film came about? And for people who don't like know the film, like just like talk to me a little about it. Cause I just remember going to see it at the cinema, like, you know, and like sitting there, like going, well, this is going to be bigger than the castle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we thought the same thing, I remember. Yeah, no, that was um, – yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take you back because we'd yeah. done that sketch comedy show, which I mentioned, the 50-foot yes. show, and we thought, oh, let's – what can we work on? What can we do? And then we thought, oh, maybe we can do another TV series around – this premise, which was a funny premise that um, someone is killing people that represent the village people. So there's a serial killer, really, you know, killing a, a biker and, you know, a sailor. And it's a funny it idea. It's a funny idea. Still a funny Still idea. Still a funny idea. <laughs> and, uh, and then that some, I don't know how it's transitioned, but we thought, oh, let's just write it as a film. And, and that's where that, you know, 
naive part of the brain kicks in and goes, yeah, yeah, let's make a film. That can't be hard. We'll just go make a film and, and, and then we'll shoot it and then it'll come out in cinemas. That's how it works, right? So we wrote this film together. So Akmal, myself and Anthony, and we'd sort of take turns because I, I kind of worked with Akmal and Anthony, but Anthony and Akmal never kind of were able to work together because Akmal, Anthony would, Akmal would have an idea and Anthony would go, yeah, and Akmal would go, well, if you don't like it then, don't worry about it then. We'll just, we'll just do something else. Right. So they, they hated working together with each other. Whereas I, I was able to work with Akmal and I was yeah. able to work with Anthony in a very productive way. So sort of between us, you know, I was like the, yeah. the, the kind of the writing um, two-timer, um, you know, meeting Akmal and then I'd go meet with Anthony and then, you know. But we, we wrote this film called You Can't Stop the Murders and then um, Anthony had a producer and trying to shop it around. Screen Everyone said no, Screen Australia. No one wanted to give us money. Because it was a comedy? It was a comedy. Because it was like a dumb comedy or because you were unknown people? Like, all of, I mean, all because of it's, that. They thought all of that. You know, because it just like again, mm. this like I mean, and look, I'm remembering it from when I saw it 20 years ago. So, but it feels like it was ahead of its time as well, in a way. Like in yeah. that, it just wasn't what we were doing in Australia in regard to like making comedy films, like in that way. Like it feels like now, even something you see things on like you know Netflix or like you know premium streaming services mm. that have a lot more of yeah. the spirit of you know like what you guys were doing. And I think that Taika Waititi and people like that have opened up that more sort of like quirky. This is in the real world, but it's not really the real world. Sort of like you know comedy zone. Yeah. That, like this film you know, was operating in, am I remember, I, I mean, again, like I'm remembering this from a long time ago, but that's what it f feels like to me. It is exactly that. I mean, it, it, it felt like the audience didn't quite know what it was when it came out. Mm. And it was really bizarre because we would go in, I, w I would go into movies, sneak in just to watch the trailers of our, of our You Can't Stop the Murders and it'd get a huge laugh. And I thought, oh, wow. And we all kind of thought, wow, this is going to be big. This is going to be huge because it's, Everyone was laughing. They, they got it. But I don't know if people went, well, why should I go see that film? It was funny then, but I had no compelling reason to go see the film. Um, they didn't quite know what it was, I think. And I don't think they kind of marketed it in a way that sort of told the audience what it was. So it kind of, it came. And I always remember it, 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 it was a Thursday. Um, it was the day America invaded Iraq. The same night. Oh, yeah, right. And that was the first time war was televised. And so it became a, a, a stay-at-home event in a way. But And our film is called You Can't Stop the Murders yeah. starring Ahmal Sali. Yeah. <laughs> not, not a great title <laughs> Not a great that. time for the title. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it sort of, it, it came and it, and it just, it sort of disappeared. It was, it was out for about two weeks. And I, I remember there's a comedian... <laughs> Dominic O'Kieran, I don't know if you know Dominic O'Kieran. He calls me and he goes, hey, Gaz, I'm in, uh, I'm watching You Can't Stop the Murders. I'm in Manly and I'm the only one here. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why the fuck are you whispering? Yeah. Like, yeah, you don't have to whisper if you're the only one there. It's like, yeah, yeah, I just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> yeah, that's not, I don't need to <laughs> I don't know need that. I don't need to know that. Is that <laughs> please don't tell me that. <laughs> I know, I, I, but you know, it, it 
it's so it sort of it came and went, and it was a bit of like, oh, okay, that was there, and 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 we did kind of think it would do okay, and that we'd be able to leverage off it, um, but it just kind of disappeared. And I think you're right. I think today, if we made that film, there would be this an audience for it. It would be a Netflix kind of film. Um, it just feels like a lot. There's a lot of like American comedies that play in that yeah, space totally, now. There's yeah. a lot of like I think people are more familiar with that style of like I don't know. Com- you know, it just feels like you said a little before its time in a way, which is like you know. Uh, so, but you spend like a fair amount of like time and energy making this, I imagine, and then it doesn't go as well as you expected. Is that like tough? Is or is that just? oh, well, we we made it and it didn't work out? Or is it like, is there a lingering sort of, oh, this, you know, we got fucked over? Like, I mean, by society or by the times or by bad luck or whatever it is. But, you know, how was it to process that it hadn't gone as well as perhaps you might have hoped? Well, you know, it's very easy at the time. And, you know, people would go, oh, the marketing was terrible. The poster was was terrible. and, And, you know, the timing's bad. There's an Iraq war. But at the end of the day, I just think it just didn't connect with the audience. You know, they had no compelling reason to go see it, I think. I think they saw it and it was really funny, but they're like, oh, what is this about? I don't know what it's about. So it's easy not to kind of think about it. Um, so it was disappointing. I mean, it was disappointing. I remember we'd even, Arthur, Arthur Lang from A-List had booked this big room in at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, you know, in anticipation this film was going to come out before it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be this massive hit, right? And we're going to be superstars and we're going to we're yeah. going to sell out this 500 seater, right? Which is a 500 seater. I remember I remember he calls us and he goes, "Guys, it's uh, it's not good news." <laughs> yeah, that uh, that room you're thinking of doing, I don't think that's a good idea at all. <laughs> so we end up having to sort of pull out of this um of this show because the I mean the film just didn't get any traction. But it's really weird. I mean, this would have been, and it happens to me every so often, but it was during COVID and I was driving and I got pulled over for a random breath test um, just near my house. And this young cop, he must have been about 30 or something. Um, he goes, oh, you know, you have a license, you know, blow it to this one. And then he stops and he goes, oh, are you, uh, you're Gary Eck. And I thought, oh, is this this? Same guy that I was on that boat yeah. with, you know, all those years ago. That's right. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was at university <laughs> at the University of Canberra. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you remember me? And he goes, "Oh no, yeah. you you can't stop the murders." Oh, I love that film. That's uh, such a funny film. You know, how's Akma? Like, and he's only a young, a young cop, right? Because um, by the way, if you haven't, I should have mentioned that Akma and I played cops in the in the film. So when we realise that a serial killer is knocking off people that represent the village people, where where the cop at the end. Um, to, uh, that, you know, has to work it out. But a few notes of another funny story, and I completely forgot about this. Um, I went on, I went on like, um, the Today Show to promote You Can't Stop the Murders and have a guess who's on that show um, performing. On the Today Show? Yeah, the village people. The actual village people. Are you kidding people. me? No. The village people were actually on the, and it was purely by coincidence and so I mean, did they have you do something with the village? No, did no, you... because we tried to get. I, I didn't personally try, yeah. but the producer tried to get the music of the village of people, right? Because we wanted to have that in the film, um, but it's owned by some random French guy, right? 
who owns all the village people music. Not the, the village people don't own their own music, right? They're just performers. Um, someone else actually owns the music and they just, they got this, you know, synopsis. It's a killer killing people that represent the village people. And they just went, no, no. <laughs> so we, we never we were able to get the music, but we're on the, so I'm in the green room with the village people. These are the actual original members of the village people. I think minus one or I can't remember what happened, but, and I'm going, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I'm on here to promote my film. And the guy's like, oh, wow, what is it? And I told him the premise and he just, he didn't see the humor at all. He just thought I was having a go. Oh. Because it's like, oh, yeah, so it's, just, <laughs> so it's this serial killer that's killing members of the village people, right? Like you. Like it's killing you and you and you, right? right? And, and, and it's really funny. It's just like, what? It's really funny how you get murdered. You get murdered, right? You, you, your head gets yeah. chopped off, right? Why can't you understand how funny this is? <laughs> this is very funny. You don't, you don't get it, you know? So, uh, Have you ever considered... So obviously these days, you know, like these juke, what they call jukebox, like, you know, musicals are very, like, you know, popular these days. I think it would make, like, a, it would make such a great musical. Like, oh, you know, yeah. with the music of the village people, you know, like if it was one of those ones mm. where, because it's actually quite a beautiful, mm. funny murder mystery style story that yeah. you could be telling during a musical interspersed with like these musical performances, you know, of the village people's yeah. songs, like kind of a, you know, Book of Mormon slash, you know, kind of fun vibe meets like a, you know, the mousetrap sort of murder mystery vibe, like with the, the songs of the village people on top of it. I mean, that would be a good show. That would be I'm brilliant. Saying. That's a really good idea. Yeah. I should... Yeah. Um, I talk to Eddie Perfect or Tim Minchin. Yeah. They're the only people I know who know. It's funny. They're the two people that popped into my head as well. I'm going, oh, who would, who would write that, you know? Yeah. But you're right. I mean, it's got a structure. It's got a story. Yeah. And it, if you, it would be really funny. Yeah. And it'd be a great musical. Yeah. Like if the village people wanted to license the songs or something, it was a, that would be a really great, like, yeah. you know, jukebox musical. There you go. Put that I out should, to the universe. Uh, I should. Yeah. I mean, mm. it. Yeah, you're right. It's I mean, that French guy might be dead by now. Yeah. Like maybe there's maybe like his son or daughter's taken yeah. over the you know the rights to the music. They've got a, you know. I think if you're doing it as a stage play and it's a musical, they would probably yeah. get that more than some in- right. indie film. But it's a really yeah. good idea. It's a fantastic idea, actually. I should. Mm. Um, I might pitch it to to the guys. See what they say. I mean, you know, you could. It'd be fun to write with someone like Tim Minchin and. Man, can you imagine? Yeah. Like it would be. I mean, it's a it, it's a fun idea for. You've got mm. you know Book of Mormon style. You've got a couple of central characters. You can run through a thing. You've got this like music that people love. You've got these characters that you know actually in a way play better on stage than they do in a film because you can lead into the kind of like broad, you know, the set by set, scene by scene yeah. sort of, you know, like you know murder by murder, like kind of idea of it oh, it's, anyway, brilliant. it's a brilliant idea because and it does lend itself to um to a stage play because in my character i you know was a line dancer in the in the film as well so i'm competing in a line dancing <laughs> do you remember right. that i'm competing in a line I dancing do. competition <laughs> and peter callan was my nemesis and we have this kind of line dance off you know we have this competition at the end so you could imagine that live and done really yes. well with really great dancers of course um, it would be you know what? This is a good idea. Um, it's a so really good idea. Here's uh, what I was going to 
uh, say to you is there, is there anywhere that you can watch it now where does it live you can't stop the murders is it does it live on a like a streamer or a platform or a website or a can people like i mean if people have never seen this film mm. and would like to know what we're talking about like where can they find it do you know it is on youtube like someone's popped yeah. it up on youtube and and it's not on any streaming service service any that i'm aware of and i did speak to anthony i said oh why isn't it you know why can't we just sell it or you know even give it away who cares you know mm. But I think there was something tricky about the rights back then, how it's kind of so many people kind of own it and it's not like it, it's, it is today. But, um, you know, we did – I mean, we have had had sort of screenings. I know Akmal was doing Central Coast Radio and, and he put it on for listeners and we drove oh, – yeah. So Anthony, myself, Rob Carlton um, drove to the Central Coast and we had – it was a Hoyt Cinema and, you know, yes. yeah, it was 400 people that watched it. <laughs> You know, it was hilarious, you know. I mean, that must have been pretty fun, though. That, I mean, that would have genuinely been quite fun to be part of, right? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Actually, you just, I just remember, I just, it's, it came out in 2003, so it's actually 20 yeah. years this year. Yeah. I should have had a big reunion, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> it's, it's terrible, isn't it? Just well, time but, goes. Based on, based on my enthusiasm for this project. I, I really I'm, I'm lo- honestly, to... I love that idea of a musical. <laughs> and I, I really am going to pursue that. Do you know Tim Mitchin and. Um... <laughs> well, I mean, I know him. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I know him in as much as, like, you know, we know it's a small industry. We all, we all know each other, right? Like, we've all run into each other at some yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. But it's good. It's, um, good, it's a good idea. Like, I, I should contact them and just say, look, here's, here's the film. Yeah. It exists. Do you want to turn this into a musical? And I mean, you could imagine it. And it's a shame not it's to. Easy, I mean, it's easy to imagine. That's the point. Is like, it's actually like narratively. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't have to do a lot of work to, like, you know, turn what is the you, you know, pre existing narrative into, like, you know, an on stage musical, you know, version of it, I would have thought. And we even had elements of the, the, the killer. I mean, I won't give it away, but mm. it was obviously there's the killer played by Steve Rogers, um, who's the postman. And he even comes on at the end and sings a song. I don't know if you remember, but he goes, it's this really bad song. I'm a postman and I deliver mail. Like he sang this kind of sort of poetic song before he's about to blow everyone up. Um, And that was called I'm a postman. So, I mean, already we have a song (laughs) that we wrote, you know, albeit a bad one, but that, that in itself is kind of funny. Um, yeah. It's a really, honestly, it's a fantastic idea. So, um, I wanna... uh, look, Gary, I ask uh, some regular questions on this show, and I would like to ask you those regular questions. So, um, one of them is What do you think happens when we die? Do you think about that at all? And do you have thoughts around like how, what, oh, by the way, I'm not looking for you to answer on behalf of humanity. I'm just interested no. in what, what you, you think. Well, I'm, I'm not religious. I, and I'm not really spiritual in that sense. Um, so I just think we die and that's it. And then everything breaks apart. I'm very sci- – I'm more scientific. I'm more like it just stops and then everything starts to fall apart inside and, you know, becomes part of the ground, <laughs> you know, um, unless you get cremated. But generally speaking, 
yeah, I don't, I don't see a, like a, an afterlife or reincarnation or um, any of that. I, 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 it's purely scientific. It's like, well, everything just starts to now, you know, break apart and, and nature takes its hold and, and devours what's left and, and repurposes it into the ground. And, you know, that's life. That's life. You know, it's, it's, it is circular in that sense, you know. Yeah, ashes to ashes, dust to yeah. dust. Like that idea of you were nothing before and you're nothing after or you were mm. energy before and you become like this and then it gets dispersed in whatever way it gets dispersed. <clears throat> so if that is true, and look, that is certainly um, like if I were to take a punt on the available options mm. for, you know, mm. what is closest to reality, that would also be my answer that I would like in. <laughs> But so then I asked this supplementary question, which is, you know, we know how big the universe is. In fact, bigger than we ever imagined it is. We find out how much bigger it is all the time. And, and you know, we're this tiny little mm. planet in this tiny corner of this, you know, massive universe. Mm. And that we have, we, we've become what we are, human beings, like, you know, the human race, this evolution of like you know where we came from even as humans mm. to where we are today and where we seem to be going mm. what's that about <laughs> like why yeah. why do, why do you think it is what we are like if if what you're saying is true and i believe probably it is true we were nothing before there's nothing after and there's no greater meaning then why is it this like why do we have like poetry and comedy and mm. sport and food and art and whatever else, you know, wars and guns and, you know, like why, why is it this, do you think? Uh, yeah. I love the way you said that, you know, why is that? Like that should be the, H that should be the HSE question, <laughs> yeah, like right. this really yeah. articulate question. And yeah. then like, what's the go yeah. with that? Yeah. What's all that about? <laughs> what's all you that about? You, and you've got to throw in you reckon. Yeah. What's all that you about reckon. you reckon? Yeah. <laughs> what, the, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I do, it's, it's a, once you start to think about it, it does your head mm. in a bit, you know, you go, yeah. well, you know, how did this, and I, I kind of come from the point of view that it just, it's, it's, there's a bit of chance, there's a bit of just luck in a sense that life started the way it did on earth, you know. I can't explain why the universe is here and why it got to this point and why right now you and I are hurtling through space at 70,000 miles an hour. I mean, it's people forget that right now, Earth, all those planets in our solar system are hurtling at 70,000 miles an hour and we have no idea where we're going. I mean, that is extraordinary that you're, we're traveling so fast in one direction, we don't, and we don't, there, we have no idea where the end point is. I mean, imagine just hopping in a car and driving at a thousand kilometers an hour through the desert and just going, well, I don't know where this goes. You know, like no. it's, it is kind of. Well, not just like driving through the desert and going, I don't know where this goes, but at some point, forgetting becoming yeah. so immune to the fact that you were driving at a thousand yeah. kilometers an hour through the desert that you start filling your time with other things yeah. <laughs> writing poetry killing yeah. each other you know taking yeah. over the other car that's next to you um so it is that idea of like i guess the the question is i'll i'll, I'll, re I'll reframe it a little which is that 
to some religious people, say, and this is not a judgment, this is just to give it a guideline for this question. If you're a person who has a religious framing of what you believe life is about, you know, and whatever religion, whatever framing that might be, it gives you some sort of guidelines, some terms and conditions on how you can live your life. So if you're a person who doesn't have, you know, 10 rules like mm. from a book that you can follow that tell you whether you're doing a good or bad job or yeah. whatever else. How do you how do you as a human being work out what to do and what the like what what is the meaning of life? Where do you find that from? Or do you not think about that? Is it not important to think about what life means? Is it just important to do it and get on with it and then die. I don't know what happened. Like, what is, you know? Like, well, in a nutshell, that's probably yeah. it, to be honest. I mean, I try not to, um, I don't live by any certain rules like um, that you describe. Um, and your life becomes very insular in the sense that it's the immediate world around you. So it's your immediate family. So it's your kids, you know, it's your partner. It's your family that you become much more aware of as you get older, as they get older. You know, I'm very much aware, you know, my parents are much older now. So I, I kind of see, oh gosh, they're, they're much older now. Whereas when you're young, you, you, your parents are kind of immortal in a sense, you know, you never see them in a, in a kind of a fragile way. And then as your kids get older and you see the sort of, you know, their issues and, and, and trials and tribulations as they grow up. So your world becomes that very much. And so it's it's kind of hard to think bigger picture and go, oh, I must live my life a certain way. What about in relationship then to you talk about kids, like because that's a very practical example of where occasionally you're going to have to pass on some sort of guidance. Mm. It's sort of implicit in the job description yeah. that at some stage you're going to, you know, have to answer a question or two about like, you know, life and what it's all about and at least help them, you know, find their own answers to those questions at the very least, even if you can't provide them. So in those situations, like, do you have like a parenting philosophy? Did you have some sense of this is what – I'll give you a, a quick example that I quote all the time from my parents, which was one of the things my parents said all the time was our plan is that we're going to love you enough that you don't want to leave home before you finish school <laughs> and not love you so much that you don't want to leave home once you finish yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said that's what – that was like what we're aiming for. That's our little sweet spot there. And I think they did a pretty good job that's with that. A great, that's say. a great line. Yeah. I mean – now that you mentioned that, you can see why religion is very popular because it helps you answer those questions. You know, like, right. Dad, why is the sky blue? Well, God made it that way. Now shut up. Mm. Like, it's 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 simple, isn't it? Like, it's a simple answer. Well, God did that. God did this. You know, it's like you just put it all mm. in that basket. God. That was God. That was God. That, that, definitely God. Anything I don't know. Yeah, God. God, God did it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. God did it. I don't know. Ask God, him. Yeah. Pray to him and he'll give you the answer. <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, you try – being a parent is – being a good parent is really difficult. Being a bad parent is really easy, right? <laughs> it's so easy to be a bad parent. And, and But being the good parent is really hard and, and, and being able to say the right yeah. things and, you know, it's very hard sometimes, you know, just to, to say the right thing that, you know, your kid will listen to. But, um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't have – I did, I did pinch something from Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was watching his documentary, which I thought was good, that his dad said to him, and that was just be useful. Whatever you do, just be useful. Yeah. And I thought, I, and I remember saying to my son recently, I said, look, just be useful. Don't 
whatever you do in life, it is a good idea to be useful. That's right. You don't want to be the first one eaten come the cannibal apocalypse, yeah, right? That's like right. You, you want to have that. You want people to look at you and go, "No, you know what? We should keep him or her mm. around for a bit longer. Yeah, like have have some use to society." But it makes you feel like there's there's something self empowering about that as well. Like you feel mm. if you are useful, you can also feel of use, yeah, which is like that's true. I'm interested though. You like I mean you like have. Like you said, you made animation for kids. You've uh, the the reason that you know the most recent uh, you know uh, project you have to plug is um, your latest children's book, which is called "The Day the Moon Came to Stay," which came out very recently, yeah. right? And so, when you come to like write something like that, I mean, I don't have any kids, so I don't have necessarily a modern day experience of like what children's books are, but my memory of them and my general assumption of them is that they always have some sort of, there's a story behind the story. The story is about something else, you know, it's about sharing or friendship or responsibility or morality or what, you know, there's something at the heart of it. Like, do you sit down when you like work on a project like that with, I guess this is what this book is about at its, yeah, it might, the book might be about the moon or the you know, show might be about vegetables or the dinosaurs, but what is it really about? Yeah. I mean, actually the, the, the day the moon came to stay is a good example because the, the idea came to me when my son was probably like two years old and I'm outside and there's a big full moon. And I was like, Hey, look at the, look at the, look at the big moon. And he's looking up and he's trying to grab the moon, like, cause he sees the moon and it looks like the moon is that size to him. And he can't understand why, you know, he couldn't actually get that moon. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting idea, isn't it? You know, that a child thinks the moon is that big. And what if it kind of was that big? You know, what if the moon was like six foot tall and just a round moon? Um, and I, that idea kind of stuck with me. And then I just started playing with it very slowly and then thinking, oh, you know, what if there's this, you know, little boy and he looks up and he sees the moon and it looks sad and so the next night he looks at the moon again and it still kind of looks sad to him and he doesn't know why. And so he writes a message on a piece of paper and folds it up, makes it into a Zuma Boomer 3000 aeroplane and he throws it up into the night sky and it disappears, you know, up, in, up you know, into the clouds. And, and then the next day, you know, he opens the door and there's the moon and it's got the paper aeroplane and on the paper aeroplane we, we see what we didn't see before, which said, you know, you know, you know, please come and stay with me. Cause he wrote to the moon saying, if you're upset, is everything okay? Did a meteorite hit you too hard? You know, all this kind of, you know, something <laughs> that a boy might think the moon yeah. is upset with. And so, yeah, the moon turns up. And so these, the boy sort of takes the moon on a sort of adventure, um, you know, and the tides, you know, everywhere they go, it just turns to chaos because they go to the beach and all the tides rush in. <laughs> You know, yeah. and then they're like, oh, let's go somewhere, you know, where it's not so wet. And then they go to the park and then of course all the dogs are howling and, you know, <laughs> and then they go to the country and all the cows start jumping over the moon. And then, it, <laughs> and then like a, a, a rocket lands and astronauts come out and they, you know, stab the moon with a flag and it's like, ah, you know, and they've, they've got to get away. And then, but of course the moon's got to go back at the end of the day because it can't stay the whole day. So it's got to go back for, for nighttime. <laughs> and then the moon... Just when, you know, the boy says, oh, you've got to go now, the moon says, well, I'm not going to go. He doesn't want to go. He wants to stay here because on earth he, he loves it here. Everyone loves him here. He has so much fun. And up there he, has, he doesn't 
has a purpose. He doesn't feel like he's got anything to do. He's just a gray old moon looking down at the big, bright, blue, beautiful earth um, and doesn't realize that. And then the boy kind of shows him everything's chaotic by this stage. You know, like they look out because they're on the top of the house and there's, you know, giant waves and the rockets and the cows are there. Everything's just topsy-turvy. And the boy points out, you know, we need you up there because without you, look what happens. Our earth just turns to, to chaos, you know. And then the moon sort of kind of realizes that, way, well, you know, I've got something. But he still doesn't want to go back. He says, I'll think about it. You know, <laughs> even though the world's like an apocalypse, you know. He's like, I mean, it's pretty honest though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's like. Because often we know what the right thing to do is, but we're like, yeah. yeah I'll think about but, it. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, you make a lot of good points, but I'm digging this still. I, I mean, I, it's one of my favorite lines in the book where the moon, yeah. uh, the boy just points out all this madness. Yeah. The moon goes, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll think about I'll it. I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and then you know the, they go to sleep because the moon sleeps on the top bunk. Um, yeah. And then the boy wakes up and the moon's not there. And he, you know, hears a howl and he looks outside and he looks up in the sky and there's this big giant super duper moon. And then this paper aeroplane comes down and it's from the moon saying thank you. I really enjoyed my time. You know, I really enjoyed my space. Bit of a joke there. Blah blah blah. But you know, it, and it it is it is a. Uh, a story that when I wrote this one in particular, I did want to kind of have that sort of narrative arc and a message, some sort of meaning behind it, you know, that, you know, I want, I want kids to go, look, you know, even you do have a purpose. There is something you can do because a lot of kids I think don't realize they can do something or they're told not to do that. Or maybe, you know, they should pursue something else. And I just think every child has something really unique in them that if they just were able to exploit that, they'd do it really well and they'd be amazing at it. And so I, you know, I'm, that was kind of the purpose of this book to sort of say to kids, you know, look, you know, you can do something even when you don't think you have a, you're good at it or you have a purpose, you know, there is something there. So that, that was kind of the messaging, I think, which is quite nice, I think. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. It honestly is. Um, we have to finish up really soon, yeah. but I've got a couple couple more co compulsory questions. Compulsory questions, yeah. <laughs> These are, the, I mean, just some standards, yeah. you know. People get, people, you know what the funny thing is? I'm, I, what I've realized is that, because I'm off all social media and I don't see any feedback to anything. Right. But I invent my own feedback constantly. <laughs> I was about to say to you, oh, people get mad if I don't do this. I've got no, no idea whether people care one way <laughs> nor the other. I, I have decided this is how I wrap up the podcast yeah. because otherwise we'd talk for four hours. Yeah. I would just not stop talking to you. I've barely talked about half the things I thought we might talk about today. So I know, it's like, great. You know, so I always need some sort of artificial you know, constraint like to like finish it up. So this is how I wind up. Uh, best or worst piece of advice that you've ever got or both or it, like, you know, I mean, obviously if you can't remember any, that's fine. But I, I particularly love bad advice. Have you ever been given a, a, like a piece of advice that someone assured you was true and it, and it wasn't true? But um, good advice is also appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I remember, um, I remember, yeah, I have been. I remember when I was working on Happy Feet, George Miller said something which always stuck with me. You know, he just said, "You have to make it." Have, when you do something, make it so that the response is how much. 
So meaning that make it really good. Make it purple cow, make it stand out, make it that they look at this and they want it. And they go, their first question isn't, oh, what's this about or who's in it? It's how much? How much does this cost? How much does it cost? How much does this cost? And yeah. it, and it, it kind of stuck with me, and you know, it reminded me of when you go to places like Bali or whatever, and you see something in one of those market shops, and you want that, and your first question is, "How much is that?" Yeah. And as soon as you say that, they know you want it, yeah. and yeah. you're not leaving until you've they, they've sold it to you, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're just picking up something and looking at it mm. and put it back, they kind of go, "Well, he's not really interested." But as soon as you go, "How yeah. much?" They, that's it. That's the sale. Yeah, there's de- yeah. Well, as soon as they, you say how much, you know that there is at least a price for which you would take it home. Yeah, and uh, right. And, like, and you that, know, that's that's what you've entered into. Then is the idea of like there might be a price that's too high for you to take it home, but the idea that you want to take it home. Yeah, like that. That's where you are already. But, that's good. But that means you've got that to a point where it's <clears throat> it's a great product. So mm. the, that person selling that you know thing then in that store you know, it's popular. They know it's good and people buy that. And so when it came to a, say, like a film idea, it's like make executing it so it's at a level that people just go, yeah, how much? And it's, it's a hard thing to do. It really is hard to execute something at an amazing level and, and have it just be brilliant. I mean, it, it does happen all the time, but it doesn't necessarily happen to me. <laughs> when you work with someone like, you know, Dr. George, Dr. George uh, yeah. the great, the great Dr. George, uh, like one of the all time, you know, mm. like creative geniuses, but also like, let's remember a doctor, mm. like <laughs> just true. like a super high functioning yeah. human being. Yes. Um, what's that experience like? Like, you know what I mean? A, a legend of not just Australian entertainment, but we're talking like, I mean, you know, George Miller is, a, I think an historically great filmmaker, like someone that 50 years from now when people talk about like, you know, cinema from this time, like he will be one of the names, mm. you know, alongside other people, but he will be in that conversation of people that they talk about, yeah. you know, what he did mm. and, you know, the way he went about doing it. So when you're working, you know, with somebody like that, what's that What's that experience like? How do how do you go into an experience like even like yourself like you know knowing that you're going to work with someone mm. who has that sort of cultural imprint? Yeah, I mean at the time you, you weren't even thinking about it, but you know what I really learned was was that sense of making something stand out. It has to be different to everything else that's come before it. Um, I mean, he even said when he made Mad Max Fury Road, his biggest problem, well, one of the biggest things he had to deal with was that everyone had ripped off Mad Max, the original, like that apocalyptic world had just been done to death, you know. And so he knew that he couldn't do the same thing as everyone else. He had to reinvent it and do something quite bold and outrageous beyond being bold and outrageous. Um, So, you know, that sort of stuff I never really thought too much about, but I do think about, okay, well, what's different about what I'm doing? What's different about this differentiates it from everything else out there, um, you know, that's similar. And, I mean, he uses a term, and I, I can't remember where this term came from, actually, because I, I think another writer may have mentioned it, but, um, like, something has to be uniquely familiar in the sense that 
if you look at a film, it has to be familiar that it's a genre or an idea, you know, that people get. Is it a romantic comedy? Is it a thriller? Is it a horror? You know, um, is it a sci-fi? So that, that familiarity in what that is, but what's unique about it? What makes your sci-fi unique to all the other sci-fis out there? Because that's what's going to make the audience go, oh, I haven't seen that. And I think you get that and you, it, it's a surprise. It's no surprise when you look at a film like Barbie when it comes out. You see the trailer and you go, well, I, I feel like, I, you know, it, it's a familiar, it's a familiar, you know, IP. It's a familiar idea. We all, we go to it kind of already infused with what it's, we think it's going to be about. But it was done, you know, in a really unique way. It had no one had sort of done that before. And so there's no surprise that that makes a billion dollars. Um, but it's a really hard thing to do. I mean, it sounds easy. Oh, yeah, make it uniquely familiar. Make it unique. And yeah. But as you're writing something, you get convinced that your idea is unique. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and when you're making something, everyone who's working on it convinces mm. you that it's it's a unique and it's amazing. Oh, this is going to be the oh, a great film. You know, it's going to be fantastic. And then it dies. And I went, yeah, I thought it was going to be a turkey. Yeah, <laughs> I, always I always knew. knew but. Um, yeah, I mean that, that right, kind Ga of advice. Gary, yeah, Gary, we're we have going. one. We have one more minute. Okay, one more minute. Okay, right. Like this is when we lose the studio, so we have one more minute. Let's do the plugs first. Your book is out now, it's, but we're gonna get. Yeah. You can't stop the murders made into a musical. I'm onto people, that. If if people want to check out your other stuff, though, do you have like where's the home base? Do you have a website or something? Where's the best place for them to find you? Uh, yeah, I mean GaryEck.com is pretty easy. Um, yeah, and the book, The Day the Moon Came to, Come, Came to Stay, that's out in uh, all good bookstores, I think. And anyway, it's not at your bookstore. Just get them to order it. Um, yeah, I know. mean, that's even better. If you People always think if it's not there, they just walk away and go somewhere else. Ask the yeah. bookstore to get it in. Well, you know, That's actually very good for authors if you go into good. a bookstore and actually ask for a book they don't have because then they will order it. And tell them, like I went to Harry Hardhog's in Marrickville mm. and I went to look for my book and it wasn't there. I was like, what? And I said, oh, look, um, have you, are you getting the day the moon came in to stay? And they went, oh, and they looked online. They're, oh, we don't have any in stock. But um, I said, oh, look, I'm the author. You know, I, I live around here. Oh, are you the author? Fantastic. I'll, I'll order six. And she ordered six right on the spot. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, I, perfect. Yeah. All right. We're running over time, yeah. but I've got to ask you this question. I have a time machine. I can take you forward in time, backwards in time. Doesn't matter. You can go to your own life, someone else's life. Doesn't like, no, no, you're not going to fuck up the timeline. You don't have to kill Hitler unless that's your passion project. Um, you can just do something selfishly. Would you go forward or backward in time and where would you go? Ah, oh, man, I'd probably go backwards. You know, I just, I just finished reading Bill Bryson's 1927 and I thought oh, yeah. the 20s would be in an amazing time. Just because it was just the like the invention of so many things, radio and TV and flight, it would have been quite inspiring, I think, to live there, um, except for the depression. But apart from that bit, <laughs> I thought it was a biography of the man nineteen twenty-seven. Do you yeah. remember? That? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's when I think of you. Yeah, I used to see them on Hey Hey at Saturday all the time. Gary, thank you so much for being part of this. I'm sorry that I'm rushing you out, no, but great. I know that, that like we have to get out of the studio. But thank you so much for doing this, mate. I I super appreciate no, you being part of it's it. It's been fantastic, Will. Thanks for having me on. Listener.